Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. We had a busy news week this week. We had announcements from Facebook and Apple, which we've covered on Recode.net. We've also covered on this very podcast. And we also had a big earnings miss from Netflix, which we didn't cover. So let's do that now real quick in super short form. Netflix missed its subscriber projections by 2 million people, which is a lot even for Netflix. Netflix has missed before. And whenever it does, there's always a question about what it all means. Usually kind of forget about it over time. Um, This one's newsworthy and worth thinking about because the question is whether Netflix has signed up so many people last year during lockdown that's kind of tapped the well for a while, which is more or less what Netflix has said has happened or whether this is a result of competition from Disney and HBO and everyone else in streaming. Netflix says it doesn't think that's the case, so we'll be watching closely for the next year, and maybe we'll forget about this in a year, but we will certainly keep track of it. Okay, so that was an efficient news story. Today we have a fun show. We get to talk about movies and the Oscars with Vox's Alyssa Wilkinson and Allegra Frank, who used to work at Vox and now at Slate. Did you guys know the Oscars are coming up this weekend? It's true. They're coming up. For whatever reason, the pandemic seems to have eviscerated audiences for big live events, and Hollywood's freaked out about this week's show. But Alyssa and Allegra argue that movies the Oscars are highlighting are pretty excellent, and because of the pandemic, they're widely available, so that's the glass-half-full version of that argument. I have seen two of the Oscar-nominated movies, by the way, um, so far. Judas and the Black Messiah is an excellent, fun to watch. Highly recommended. Speaking of fun, I also love 60 songs that explain the 90s the podcast series from the ringers Rob Harvilla. So I had him on to talk about it. We do talk about some business stuff here because it's a business of media podcast. And we talk about the craft involved and making a new kind of music essay. But mostly I just wanted to nerd out about music with another music nerd. So that's what we did. And I wanted to shine a, a small spotlight on a thing I think is cool. So that's what I did. Okay, that is a lot of me. Let's hear from some other people as well. Alyssa Wilkinson and Allegra Frank, hello. Uh, the last time we all got together was to discuss the Oscars, and that's when you could go see movies in movie theaters, and now we're doing it again, but we're at home and you have to watch movies at home, but I'm delighted to see you guys. Uh, welcome back. It's good Hi. to see you too. Hi. Yeah, last time we were all together, we could also like be all together in person. Mm-hmm. So that's different too. So uh, here, we'll just introduce you. Uh, Allegra Frank used to work with me at Vox, and now she's at Slate. Hi, Allegra. Hi. And Alyssa Wilkinson still works with me at Vox from a distance. (laughs) Yes, hello. (laughs) The Oscars are a chance for us to talk about movies and the state of movie going. They're also a chance for us to talk about culture broadly and then the business of culture. Let's start with the business because there's a lot of angst about the Oscar awards and the telecast coming up on Sunday. And they're in certain corners, I guess people who write about this stuff and think about it and people who produce these shows, there is a lot of pre-anguish about what's going to happen during the Academy Awards. And the conventional wisdom is that the audience will not show up and maybe will be half of what was last year, maybe less than that. People are talking about like 10 million people watching. It would be an all-time low by 50% or more. First of all, Alyssa, are you paying attention to the sort of industry's fears about the telecast itself? Leaving aside the movies, is this something that's on your mind? Yeah. I mean, it has been for years. The viewership has been dropping for years um, on all live TV events, even the Super Bowl, which typically is the one that pulls in viewers, is dropping. So uh, there's been a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of attempts to re-engineer this 
the show in ways that will get people to watch it because they're interested. Like they tried to introduce a best popular picture category that didn't really get off the ground, thinking that people would that, watch. That that happened years ago, right? That's back to Lord of the Rings time. <laughs> no, it, it, no, it happened two years ago. <laughs> they oh, I'm sorry. I'm confusing. <laughs> they, ex- they expanded the category. That was, the, that was the chance to give Lord of the Rings right. a chance to get an award. And it was largely because The Dark Knight didn't manage to get nominated for Best Picture. So they, yeah, they expanded that to give it 10 slots. That was an attempt to do the same thing, and that was 10 years ago. So now we're in a position where people still aren't watching. They realize that, like, hosts don't really bring people in. Presenters don't really bring people in. The movies themselves don't really bring people in. And I keep thinking, I can't imagine why anyone would watch it live. I don't watch anything live anymore. You can watch the good stuff the next day or just watch it go by on Twitter and watch whatever it is you would rather be seeing on Netflix or something. So, you know, this year's award shows have been really, really low in viewership. And I would not be surprised if the Oscars are the same way, although they are trying to intrigue us to make us feel like this might be different. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll be worth watching. People also arguably had the chance to watch all the Best Picture nominees this year in a way that they didn't in the past since they've all been digital. So there is a chance that more people might be interested in those movies, but I think we'll still see a drop-off. And in my view, if they really are worried about viewership for the Oscars, they're just going to have to rethink the whole thing, um, which I don't see happening anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this on on other in other conversations, it's kind of fascinating because the conventional wisdom a year ago was, all right, we're, we're losing all of the stuff we normally used to watch. But as things come back, because we're all housebound, we'll be desperate to watch stuff together. So live events will be even more attractive, starting with sports and sports ratings pretty much across the board have been down. Uh, award shows are down. Allegra, whether or not this is a one-year blip and the Oscars come back a bit next year or this is sort of the new normal Does it matter? Does it matter that we're all not tuning in to watch a live awards event? Does it matter to movie making and movie going and the culture? I don't know that it would matter to movie making or movie going in any real tangible way because, I mean, (laughs) the industry is operating as such that, you know, big franchises, tent poles are the ones that are actually making the money. Um, and it's hard to really gauge that right now because we're a year out of actual, you know, regular. Right. All, all of the, the tent poles got pushed off and they're going to start exactly. showing up probably this summer slash fall. Right. But, but the sort of default mode was the, the big box office winners were the sort of the Marvel movies, the the rock movies, as in movies starring The Rock. Um, <laughs> the whole genre unto itself. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I don't think that award shows play any part into that sort of flattening of what actually is being seen. So people um, will be just as interested in Fast and Furious 15, whether or not it gets nominated for an Oscar and whether or not the Oscars are even a live television broadcast. Right. I mean, it goes to what Alyssa was talking about in terms of these ratings have been waning for a long time at this point. And all the very bald-faced attempts that the Academy has made to sort of appeal to the more general, average American moviegoer um, by broadening the best picture field. But we've seen them really if not recant to that stance, just move away from it. Because think about the Best Picture nominees this year, which we'll get into. They are, you know, more highbrow dramas or in a typical year, they would be harder to watch than the usual movies that come out in like 4,000 theaters, 4,000 screens. So I feel like the award show model is very much divorced from the actual movie-going habits and movie-making habits, which also are trending toward let's make the franchises and the sequels and the smaller award courting productions will exist in their own system. That is not the tenor of the coverage and the discussion, though. It's lots of hand-wringing about, you know, this is a collapse, we're we're in real trouble. Uh, Sometimes they're connecting this with the fact that, uh, you know, uh, the arc-like theater is is being maybe shut down and that the Alamo Drafthouse is in bankruptcy. But it seems like if we step back and are sort of rational about it, those things really are split up. Let's let's talk about the Oscar uh, awards themselves by talking about the Best Picture nominees. I'm going to read them all because I bet 
that many people listening to this podcast are unfamiliar with them, um, like I am. The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of Chicago 7. I pay attention to culture because I like it. I also do it professionally. I have heard about, I guess I've heard of all of these. I've watched two of them, Judas and the Black Messiah and Trial of Chicago 7. Those two seem like movies that in the old days, maybe my parents and my family would have gone to see, you know, over uh, on like uh, on Christmas with the rest of the Jews. Because um, <laughs> we would go see a, a serious drama mm-hmm. on Christmas Day. Um, and the rest all strike me as small, independent slash independent-ish. Some of them are released by like Amazon movies that generally would not have a big audience under any circumstance. First of all, is my is my characterization correct? Alyssa would, wants to say something. It I I would moderate it only by saying that, for instance, Mank is a David Fincher movie on mm-hmm. Netflix, and David Fincher has a following. I, I would also say it's kind of the least Fincherist movie that he's ever made, but it. There, it's a riff on Citizen Kane and the making of it and references yeah, Fincher's own father. Yeah, it's a look at the politics of Hollywood in the 1940s. So um, it's just not, it's maybe not typical. And also, I think you're right about Trial of the Chicago 7, mostly because it's Aaron Sorkin and the name Aaron Sorkin drags people into theaters. And there are also a couple movie stars. You know, Nomadland has Francis McDormand, who has a following. Um, the father has... Um, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, thank you. The father has <laughs> Anthony Hopkins, who, you know, people go see a movie. I can imagine that one doing yeah. well with They've older audiences. They've heard of him, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there's the the truly small movies here are like Minari, which is, which is very tiny. Judas and the Black Messiah is a first-time director. Promising Young Woman, you know, has Carrie Mulligan, but it's it was a Sundance premiere. So there's really kind of a mix there. Um, but yeah, none of these are massive movies. Not that massive movies often are nominated for Best Picture. Right. That's what I wanted to get to. Is this a pandemic Oscars lineup? If there hadn't been a pandemic, would this lineup look different? Or are these the kind of movies that get nominated for Oscars no matter whether or not... I mean, The Fast and Furious 9, which we <laughs> didn't get to see last year, wouldn't have been nominated anywhere. Are, right. are, we, are we missing stuff that we'd see in a normal year? Or is this kind of what the Academy thinks is the best the Academy has to offer? I think that's a really interesting question that I have been asking myself as well, because obviously a lot of the movies that were delayed were, as you mentioned, you know, Fast and Furious 9 or Black Widow, James Bond. So a lot of those movies that are really aimed toward the theater going audience where these studios will make a ton of money back, um, which is not really possible when it's the pandemic and most theaters are closed and people aren't going. And those movies, as you said, you know, they're not really trying to get Oscars. They're just trying to make money um, or participate in franchises. Or entertain lots of people. Or entertain, And or, yes. I mean, I am very excited for all of those movies myself. But I have been thinking about movies that do seem like typical awards bait that have also been delayed that aren't the typical, you know, that aren't the franchises and aren't the superhero movies. Things like... In the Heights, which is finally coming out this summer, um, the adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, that's something that felt like it was, you know, a, a big musical with a large following baked in with a huge award-winning name attached. That was something that was delayed partially because it seems like the rare awards baity movie that could also make money. Same with West Side Story, which is similarly a musical adaptation. That's Steven Spielberg's adaptation that was pushed back from the fall um, to this fall. So we see we're seeing a lot of those kinds of films from well-known directors who also have received critical acclaim for their works in the past that have been nominated many times. Their movies have been delayed, and that means they won't get their chance at the award season run until the following year. So it's interesting to think about, you know, have those movies stuck to their release dates? Would they have made it into the field and thus make this field feel a little bit more mainstream? But of course, it's hard to say. Right. And if you compare this field against even just last year's, you can see that last year's were slightly larger budgets and slightly more popular. Like, for instance, Joker was nominated. Obviously, Parasite was a hit. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Little Women. So they were a little more broad, perhaps. Um, But even so, 
when I looked at this list, when it finally came out, I thought, oh, wow, I actually like to love most of the movies on this list in a way I haven't in a while. (laughs) Um, And I don't think that's just because I'm a critic. This is a pretty varied selection with really different themes and different genres and different um, sort of diverse group of people who made them. And that's unusual um, among Best Picture nominees. And I think that may be the most remarkable way in which these Best Picture nominees are atypical, is that we have more women who directed, we have more movies about um, stories about people of color, we have more kind of historical dramas that deal with the same time periods than we normally have. And nothing that was a like a, a breakout uh, hit or anything that was a breakout, let's argue about it. Yeah. So in that positive, positive-ish vein, let's let you mentioned this at the beginning, Alyssa. These movies have been widely accessible for a long time. Um, we were talking this weekend or Friday about you know which movies should I watch this weekend, and uh, Allegra was saying I think I can't remember which one it was. Maybe Minari. You had to rent for six dollars or something. And she's like, oh, that's 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 a little much for me. Uh, it was twenty dollars. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, okay, I'll take it back. So that's twenty bucks. So that's that's actually the cost of more than one movie ticket. But in most cases, if you have a bunch of streaming services you could watch all of these. Um, if you had Netflix, you could watch several of them without any fee. Uh, basically, without any, with very little work and a very minor expenditure of money, all these things were widely available. Obviously, it's different watching it at home than watching in the theater. And we can't choose. We're in a pandemic, so this is what we have. But is this model, in the end, better for getting these kind of movies out to a large audience that isn't in Chicago and L.A. that normally would have to wait months or even longer to, to see a Minari or a Nomadland? Are we, are we better off that way? Or would you like us to go back to the world we had before where Nomadland showed up in a, special, in a handful of uh, you know, festivals and then a couple big cities and then eventually made its way across the rest of the country if you were lucky to be in a, th- a city that had that in a theater? Yeah, I, th- I think the festival model is a really valuable one. I know there's a lot of downsides to it, but it is a valuable one in that a film can build up ahead of steam before it hits the public so that people have, oh, I've heard of that. Like, I heard it was really good or that sounded really interesting. And festivals are one way that that can happen. Um, but in general, I think the best thing for what I would very broadly call art cinema, um, which these mainly fall into, the best thing that's happened for them in the past year is the emergence of different models for releasing those to a wider audience, including like the virtual cinema model where you can you can stream the film, but you you pay your local theater the money and they split it with the distributor and you're still streaming it at home, but the money kind of went to the distributors and the and the independent theaters. And also the windows are closing between theatrical release and digital release. And maybe for larger films, there may be some problems there as far as the business model. But with the smaller ones, you know, it kind of, it's a bummer as a film critic to be really enthused about a movie and really want people to see it. And just people don't even have the opportunity to see it for four to six months at least because... I might be able to see it in a theater, but someone in rural Tennessee doesn't even have a theater near them that will ever play it. So the increased accessibility to art film for people who are enthusiastic about movies that aren't made by, you know, giant conglomerates, that can be a really positive thing. The downside, of course, is people need to get paid (laughs) and that there's a lot more than for people to see. So how do they distinguish between them? And so I think, you know, the festival model where... You know, Minari premiered at the Sundance Festival in 2020, and it didn't come to viewers until fall, but it had time to really build up a lot of uh, kudos and some good clips and good reviews and and interviews and things like that over that time. That can really help a tiny film like that launch well with an audience, which is something that it really did. The same exact thing happened with Promising Young Woman, which certainly has been super buzzy. But a lot of the reason is because people saw it nine months before it came out and they had time to talk about it and, and pump it up. Right. So and there's in kind some of cases- two sides to the coin there. And in some cases you have, you know, Amazon, again, I'm mentioning more than once, like really pushing, like whenever I've gone on Amazon to look at anything, they're telling me to go watch Sound of Metal, yeah. which I will do eventually. Um, <laughs> and, but that's that's a lot of marketing um, power. And there is, you know, 
obviously choice is good and it's a privilege to be in cities where they have these movie theaters um, that not everyone has. Um, there is something to watching these small movies, I'm doing air quotes, uh, in a theater that mm-hmm. is so much better than watching it. Yes. Just because it makes you watch them. Um, mm-hmm. I still remember watching Whiplash, which is yeah. a very accessible movie, but it's about a, a drummer. It's about a jazz drummer. Um, and if I'd watched it at home the first time instead of seeing it in a theater where on a big screen where you had to watch it and couldn't walk away, it'd be a very different experience experience. Mm-hmm. Allegra, again, it's a little, it's embarrassing that I have seen so few of these movies, but one of the reasons I have is that they haven't seemed very fun um, for <laughs> me to spend my my time, and, and I do want some escape over the last year. And we talked about this again over the, over the uh, on Friday. I said, what, what should I watch that's not a bummer? And you guys were a little bit stumped. Is that sort of the function of just what we got? Is it just random potluck this year that these are not super broad movies? Like, again, like Whiplash was, or or is there something else going on where they, sort of these are more intentionally more difficult films and there's a reason for that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think the nature of film production is such that I don't think it's necessarily like an intentionally deeper, darker crop than other years, um, you know, as... Because these things were made a couple years ago. <laughs> right, like, yes. in <laughs> parallel to our year being, like, similarly dark and depressing. Um, one, I mean, one theory I could have to relate back to what I was talking about with, like, those other sort of typical Oscar baby movies that were held back is those sort of feel-good movies that target a mainstream those are the kinds of movies that like will be released in more theaters because they are very broadly accessible. And those were the kinds of movies we were seeing held back. That's the West Side Story. Right. Both West Side Story and In the Heights are the examples I gave. Like those are very, you know, audience, uh, they're they're more heartwarming and feel-good type movies. They're not going to make you question the nature of capitalism like like (laughs) Nomadland and whether you should be ordering something from Amazon. (laughs) Right. So these movies were obviously, they were planned to come out this year and they stuck to their release dates and were produced at the times they were produced. And so they're not reflective of what was going on this year. But I can definitely see the makers of the, the more you know, mainstream-friendly movies holding back on those, whereas there's no need to delay something like Nomadland in the same way. So we started off talking about Oscars ratings. I actually don't watch the Oscars most years. I do, like, I'll sort of follow them on Twitter, and if there's something super cool, I'll catch up and do it on Twitter or YouTube the next day. I'm going to watch this one in part for novelty, but also because it's being produced by Steven Soderbergh, who's either my favorite director or one of my favorite directors. Allegra, what do we, should we expect? First of all, what can a movie director do with an award show, period? And then what can anyone do with an award show produced in a pandemic? Yeah, so we've been seeing, it's, it feels as though each award show that's happened since last fall, I believe, with the the Emmys. I feel like the Emmys were kind of the first major award show to come out during the pandemic. So we're seeing this evolution of people understanding, producers understanding how to make a show, put on a show during a time like this where things are so restrictive. So we went from the Emmys, which were extremely virtual. Everyone's you know, on Zoom, all the presenters and nominees are on Zoom and there's technical difficulties and it's not very fun to watch to something like the Grammys, which I actually thought were like the best Grammys I've ever seen. The Grammys are usually overly long and very staid and for a a very specific kind of audience, I think that like the producers are imagining in their minds and it there's like a disconnect with the actual viewer. But those were fun because it was tight and it was focused very solely on the performances because they want to limit the amount of people who are on stage and in the audience because of social distancing. It was a bunch of musical performers performing music. Yeah, which <laughs> feels very rare for the Grammys, which is ironic, of course. But at the same time, you know, finally people were together in person. You would see the nominees actually sitting at tables six feet away or more, but, you know, in the same space. And so now we're at the Oscars. So 
the people are getting vaccinated, the summer is coming, um, there, there's hope again for a return to some semblance of normalcy. So I am curious to see how they are able to manage and react to that. Um, but at the same time, yes, they the fact that like Steven Soderbergh, who is a very like a legit director, Oscar nominated himself, uh, I think will also maybe play into the fact that like, well, we're not going to have a lot of people there. We're not going to have that same spectacle that we usually do of like just gawking at who's here and what people are wearing. Like, I'm not sure exactly what he's planning on doing. So please tell me if there are like actual revealed notes out there, but I could see a lot of like pre-taped interesting segments being directed and included, yeah. which is a smart. And to be clear, Steven Soderbergh isn't just a really good director. He's a director who likes experimenting. He made mm-hmm. a movie uh, that you should go see called High Flying Bird. On You shouldn't go see it. It's on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> he shot it on an iPhone. Um, it's super cool. He, he likes inventing and experimenting. I've seen him doing a lot of press saying, this thing is really difficult and it's going to be difficult. And um, But that said, I really want it to be awesome. Melissa, what are you, what are you looking for from a Soderbergh Oscars. I was super excited when he was announced as the producer for it because it guarantees some of those experimentation things. And he just thinks very much outside the box. He was one of the directors. uh, He was, in fact, appointed to lead the Directors Guild efforts towards coming up with COVID safe protocol for film sets resuming production. So he kind of knows what he's doing. Um, and I also just like him a lot. Um, but he's been talking about a couple things. He, he's been talking about some pre-tape stuff. So for instance, they are planning to pre-tape the best original song performances, which usually happen live during the broadcast. They are pre-taping them on the roof of the new Academy Museum, which was set to open originally at the end of April and now is opening in the fall. But that's kind of cool. It should be interesting. Um, he also has been talking a lot about how it's, this Oscars is going to look more like a movie than a TV show. And his words exactly were something like, in a TV show, you always have the people dead center. This will look different. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> I'm really excited to see All what right, he I'm means watching. by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so everyone's going to be like on one third of the screen and then the other third will be sort of, the other two thirds will <laughs> Who be. knows, right? Maybe it'll be like super wide or from, and mm-hmm. then he also, you know, right out of the gate was like, we are not going to have anyone zooming. And I believe that statement came out right after the Golden Globes, which were just kind of a nightmare to watch. Um, and I was like, thank goodness. But of course there were some, frustration because a lot of the nominees are in England and they can't just come here easily and and people are kind of scattered all over the place. But they're electing to do it via something like closed circuit TV. So everything should just be a little more smooth. Um, And Soderbergh is not the only producer. He's working with people who've produced the Oscars before, Mm -hmm. people who've won Emmys for producing the Oscars. But he definitely always brings something to his work that's very attentive to detail, very willing to figure out how to cut away what doesn't need to be done and just do what needs to be done to make a great production. And he makes things very fast. So he's just a very adaptable director generally. So I'm I'm excited about that. I still wouldn't expect many people to find that very interesting. This is more <laughs> of like an award show junkie yeah. or person who has to watch it for work thing. Um, but I'm sure whoever watches will find it interesting to look at, if nothing else, which is so unusual for awards shows and all of that could be good. I don't know if it'll drive up viewership, but it will certainly mark this as a different year. Over the last five-ish years, basically since Netflix got into into original production, there any Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, there is some counting of which streamers got awards. Did Netflix has yet to get the best picture? Does that matter anymore? Do we care about that? It seems like I haven't, uh, I have not heard that discussion. Uh, this year, or is it just because there's so much else crumbling around our ears that, that we're not we're not spending time thinking about Amazon and Netflix and their impact in Hollywood? Netflix has joined the Motion Picture Association in the time since the last Oscars and these ones, so they're actually one of the big. They're in the tent. Five. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. they are they are Hollywood now. Um, so I'm sure they still desperately want a Best Picture uh, winner, but it's a different year. For that reason, but also when everything felt like it was a streamer <laughs> release this year, I mean, Judas and the Black Messiah is Warner Brothers, but it came out on HBO Max, um, which had the very funny effect of its 31-day window 
streaming on HBO Max closed the day before Oscar nominations. And suddenly (laughs) people were like, I can't watch this movie (laughs) um, because it's not anywhere to be seen. Um, But that felt like it was a streaming release. Normally it wouldn't have felt that way. Um, I think you'll see that discussion come back next year. But I also think with the shortening windows between theatrical and digital platforms and these new uh, platforms that have popped up for doing things like virtual cinema and all of these different initiatives that have happened over the next year. This may turn out to be, you know, do people have the fight in them anymore to talk about this or is it just what's going to happen? I, I feel a little exhausted. Uh, Allegra, let's let's round this up. What movies will win Best Picture and what movie do you want to win Best Picture? Oof. It, it's interesting because, Alyssa, earlier you were saying you liked to love most of these movies this year. And I felt, I I felt more ambivalent, I think, about this uh, crop. I've seen most of them. So I do feel like I can give an answer. But I walked away when I was looking from the, at the nominees and I was like, I don't know that I am so invested in any particular one of these movies this year, which is always kind of disappointing. But in terms of what I expect to win, Nomadland seems to have it in the bag. Um, It's won many other awards on the circuit. It has, you know, a, a timely theme to it. Francis McDormand is amazing. Chloe Zhao is an up-and-coming, fantastic director. Um, So I really see that one sweeping. As for what I would like to win, um, Minari I just watched, and I find that to be a, a very special kind of story that feels truly representative of a group of people a very large group of people that are very rarely um, given this sort of attention, you know, immigrants in this country and the difficulty of assimilation and finding your place and success and the perhaps in the fallibility of the American dream. So I really, I enjoyed Minari and I feel like that's a, a more resonant pick than some of the other choices. Um, as well as Sound of Metal, I really enjoyed as well. Uh, I think that would be just like my own, if I if that won, I'd be like, yay, people will watch this movie I really liked now. That's going to be the <laughs> next on my list that I watch. Unless yeah. you get the last word. What's, what is going to win and, and what do you want to win? I think it'll either be Nomadland or Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, Amazing. In past years, I would have said Trial of the Chicago 7 for sure, hands it's down. It's not a good think- movie. At all. I yeah. did not like and it. I, I think Parasites, <laughs> And I love Sorkin. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think Parasite's win last year showed that the shift really is ongoing in the Academy. So I think if I had to pick a winner, it would probably be between Minari and... Oh, this is so hard. Because I think actually the best movie on this list is The Father. <laughs> and if you haven't seen The Father, definitely recommends. But it's not gonna... It wouldn't have won... I do really love Judas and the Black Messiah. I think it's got something to it that I haven't seen in in films in a while. Um, it's got great performances, and it's got that timeliness factor that I think could be in Trial of the Chicago 7's favor, but it handles it much better. Um, but I do, if Minari wins, I will be extremely happy for multiple reasons, and I think it's it's a special really splendid movie and worth, I would say, the $20 that it currently costs to rent. It was definitely worth the $20. You could expense no it. No complaints. You could expense it. I can expense it. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I'm delighted I got to talk to you guys again. Thank you. Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox, Allegra Frank from Slate, but still Vox in my heart. Thanks, guys. <laughs> talk to you definitely over the next year, and we'll do this again in 2022. See ya. Thanks again to Alyssa and Allegra. We're going to hear from Rob Harvilla in a minute, but first, a word from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. I'm here with Rob Barvilla, and I'm delighted because I've been sending Rob <laughs> fanboy messages for uh, more than a year <laughs> saying, I really like your essay. I really like your podcast. And I think the whole point of me having a podcast, in theory, I'm supposed to talk to people about the intersection of technology and media, and often they're titans of industry. Or, uh, But sometimes it's just a guy who's writing I like. And in this case, a guy whose podcast I love. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for all those kind words. I am not a titan of anything, of course, but I am thrilled to be here. Thank your you. Your podcast is called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Mm. which I think is kind of self-evident. Uh, we can we can get, guess what it means, but why don't you lay out the thesis of, of this idea? It's a typically maximist ringer idea to do one idea and make it and blow it up into a giant thing. It was. 60 songs was so intimidating to me at first, but I'm starting to wrap my head around it now that I'm 25 or so songs in. Uh, it, this was born of a pretty simple thing. You know, my editors came to me. I, obviously, the Ringers had a lot of success talking about older things, you know, familiar, you know, classics, nostalgia, stuff like that. You know, the Rewatchables podcast, probably the best example of that. And that's movies, of course. And so they're like, is there any version of this idea that's music? And, and, I think songs immediately stood out as like a, a super easy to grasp, you know, not full albums, not whole artists. You know, it's just a bite sized kind of thing. I think the 90s emerged pretty quickly as like safely the past, but not so far away in the past. It still feels real. It still feels tangible and present. Something your 90s, audience has heard people. of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Any any farther back, and it's probably too far back for, for the core ringer audience, I think. And then, obviously, the rewatchables, the rapport between the people talking, you know, the hosts is so central to why that show is so successful. But I'm, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio. I'm working out of my house, as I have been for seven, eight years. I got three kids now tearing the place up. I, I want to talk to other people, get their perspectives, but I don't know of a dedicated co-host if I can establish that rapport. So it ends with me sitting in my office here talking about one ninety song and it, it it sort of organically became just this monologue you know where I'm trying to balance my personal relationship with a song versus what I know about the critical reputation of the song having worked as a rock critic now for 20 plus years you know whether the song has aged well or not whether the song is held in higher public esteem now versus then or not and it all of those things just sort of glom together and I also wanted it to be a little shorter. You know, I love Song Exploder, of course, which is able to atomize one song and break it apart and really get a sense of what the artist was thinking, you know, and all of that, plus something like pop-up video, you know, which is, of course, now itself nostalgic, but just a mixture of critical analysis, but also way more frivolous, you know, asides, trivia, things like that. Just glom all of that together and you end up with me in a room here talking about, you know, cake songs or whatever it is. Yeah, there's a, so there's a bunch of things I want to ask you about. We could start with the, the format itself. So it's 60 yeah. songs, like you said. It's it's one episode per song, um, mm -hmm. but you often stray beyond that that individual song. Um, yeah. And it's a Spotify exclusive, and that allows you, the upside of that is that allows you to actually play the song at the end of the, at the, end of the episode. Right. And, and it allows you to play the clips as well, I think, with less headache than it would uh, if you were doing it somewhere else. That was the idea, yeah. And you, you and I, I think, have similar tastes and ages and, and, and demography. Um, yeah. But you're, it's, it's, it's really wide-ranging. But they, they, they uh, and it's nostalgia like you talked about, but it, it is an essay that you have written. It's, it's not just a monologue. And it's kind of, I'm nerding out about it because I think it's kind of a really cool version of something that maybe I haven't seen or heard before the, the obviously I grew up reading you know rock criticism and at some point it, yeah. when the internet showed up you could pause your reading the the essay you're reading and actually go listen to the song and at some point that kind of obviated the rock criticism part you didn't need to hear what right. Dave Marsh had to say you could go listen to the song yourself um, and then obviously, um, as things went on people added links and you could you know mm -hmm. integrate stuff into the essay but as soon as you do that you leave the essay. And maybe you don't ever come back. 
And right, what right. I like about what you're doing is you'll be talking and you'll be, I was playing my, we were listening to the Master P make him say uh, episode <laughs> on a drive last night with my kids. Oh, good educational with your for kids. Them. Yeah. I'm sure it was. They wow. learned, they learned right. a lot. <laughs> Hopefully not too much, but yeah. But you'll, you'll say, oh, I'm, I'm going to play the, the Master P uh, sound right now. I'm not going to do it. Um, and then you'll That's do a montage good. of it and it's yeah. great. And then you're right back into it. And I'm just curious, had you heard anyone do anything like that where you're sort of going from a scripted text into audio and back? I mean, it's, I'm just rambling here, but it's, it's obviously a lot of scripted uh, podcasts do this, but this was specifically to talk about music. I'm not sure I've heard one like this before. I, I'm sure that there are others, though I can't think of them offhand. You know, it's, I'm, I'm sort of an, I'm new to podcasting, you know, I'm an amateur. I've guested on various Ringer podcasts in the past, but this is my first foray into doing my own thing. And so when I started it, I just, I wrote it like I would write a piece. Like I've been writing pieces for 20 years, started with Alanis Morissette's uh, You Ought to Know, and just open up a Google Doc and start talking. And, you know, at first, of course, you know, it's, you, you you think about how it's different when I deliver it versus writing it, you know, and I think it's made the writing itself sort of cleaner and shorter and, and clearer. But I... Yeah, I, I'm sure there are precedents for this, though I can't immediately think of so them. So you're not modeling I, it after something? No, I don't think so, no. But I, there's there's lots of precedents, of course. You know, I've been reading rock criticism. You know, I, I wanted to become a rock critic because of Rolling Stone. You know, I loved Spin when I was in college. You know, I started reading Pitchfork and loved Pitchfork immediately. I, You know, I, I think the genealogy I'm working out of is, is clear. And I'm sure there are other examples of this. You know, YouTube critics now, you know, I, TikTok now is starting to do this. You know, it's, it's somebody talking about a song you know, and again, it's a mixture of critical and personal stuff. But you're right about like the hyperlink, like you leave the essay to listen to this song or like read this ancillary thing. And, and it, the, this format, you have to stay with me. You know, you're stuck with me for that 15 minutes that I'm talking. And I, I was concerned at the onset about it sounding too written or too stiff. You know, because it is, it's totally written, you know, it's just, it's just me reading right off, right off the page. And I, I hope it doesn't sound too stiff in that sense. I wanted to have a mixture of, of, a, of a looser feel, but I, I, I need that structure that I've always had as a writer. And so it's this weird thing. Like it started with me just reading my articles out loud, but as I've progressed, you know, it's, we're up to 25, 26 now, and I am hopefully learning some things about what I can do differently because I'm doing it this this way, you know, just the tone of voice. It's not quite a performance, you know. I don't fancy myself an actor or yeah, anything you like that. You perform a little bit. I like it. I like it. <laughs> it it's, is. It's, it's, well, thank you. And thank and you. you clearly like doing it, which makes it fun to listen to. You can hear that. It's dense. There's all you you do callbacks to jokes that you've done earlier on, and, yeah. and you kind of do digressions and and it gets discursive. Mm. I enjoy all of that. Um, well, good. So you did sixty songs. Was this something where you said, "Oh, what if I did 10 and then in typical sort of media production, someone said, actually, you need to do 60. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's 10 felt like way too few. Uh -huh. 90 felt like way too many. You know, I think 30 we talked about for a long time, but then you start making a list you know, of what you would want to include and what you sort of have to include. You know, well, we have to do Nirvana. You know, we have to do Biggie, this and that. Like once you've gotten, once you've filled up the slots with things that people will absolutely expect and that you pretty much absolutely have to do if you're going to talk about the 90s doesn't leave you a lot of room and so i 60 was not you know a focus group tested yeah. sort of intellectual number it just sort of emerged as a midway point that that's felt really high to me when i started but now feels way too low like i i i have been going week to week and then I no longer found that amusing. And so I tried recently to plan out like the rest of the year, like this podcast is going through the rest of the year. And I tried to plan out what song I'm doing when, and now I have way more songs than I want to talk about than slots. You know, that's the problem. Now, are, people a campaigning problem to to get, are people campaigning to get a song on or a group on, or I, I want this group. You say, well, that their peak really wasn't the nineties. That doesn't make <laughs> sense. 
Yeah, I, I get a I get a lot of messages, DMs, and the like, you know, advocating, you know, for the crash test dummies, you know, or stuff like that. And I I love it when they are personal to them, when they're not the more obvious ones. But, you what, know, they're, what they're trying to sell me on. How are you determining what you what you pick? Is it's it's often one of the best known songs from a group, but not always. Right. I sometimes it's hyper specific about that song, and sometimes the song is just a way into talking about the whole artist, or the whole scene, you know. And again, it's you probably if you look at sixty, there's probably twenty that are just sort of bulletproof. You have to talk about this artist, if not this specific song, you know. And then I I want some that are personal to me, that are unexpected, that I have a direct connection to, and you know, people are going to sort of groan when they see that I picked this song because they would prefer their own personal connection. So there has to be sort of wild card entries as well. So a mixture of the obvious and the not so obvious, a mixture of the expected and not expected, a mixture of like the culturally important and the very personal hyper-focused on me. You know, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Like I... uh, (laughs) Sorry. Some of the personal digressions that I go on feel indulgent to me in the moment. You know, it's like nobody knows who I am and 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 why would they care what I think about this? But I do think that there's a sweet spot you can reach where I can talk about these memories that are very personal to me and only to me and only interesting to me, but they stoke in you, in the listener, your own only personal and interesting to me memories. Yeah. You did one about Tool, which is a band I don't think I'd ever listened to about okay. a song called Stink Fist, which I That's definitely have correct. not listened to. And don't I listened to the whole episode because it was about about you being a, a kid in Ohio driving around at night, not really knowing what to do with yourself. And I got right. that. And even if I didn't get that, it was a fun sure. narrative. So well, I appreciate that. That's great that. to hear. That's that's the goal. That's the goal to talk about myself, but for it not to be self-indulgent and sort of therapeutic, to talk about myself in a way that some like a memory could be so personal that it can scan as universal. You know, it stokes your own personal memories. And that's the way music works. Like I there are very few songs for me that I'm like, oh, that's the song that was playing when like the earthquake happened, right? Like most of my most intense memories about a specific song are I was driving home at night and this song came on and it was electrifying. Like, like they're so mundane, but the song makes that memory, that event so powerful. It makes it an event. Like that's what interests me. And I know that everybody has songs like that and non-events that become events like that. So for me, the 90s start off, I'm in college, I'm really interested in music, I'm, I'm writing yeah. I'm writing record reviews for English literature classes, and, right. um, and by the end of it, I'm still into it, but I've stopped listening to new music for the most part, and I haven't paid oh, much really? attention. Yeah, because um, I'm in my 30s at that point, or approaching <laughs> it, or, or, lots right. of the, or lots of the popular music that's out there I'm not interested in, and, and sure. there's whole, whole swaths of music that I'm, you know... You know, I never got into Oasis and in that and that genre of, of or rhythm. Tool or Tool, and I can keep going. Um, and so, also, you know, I do, so not everyone has my experience. On um, that said, early '90s monoculture, everyone listens to the same thing pretty much at the same time. And by '99, it's Napster is blowing up the music, the music business. You can get everything you want on demand. Have you thought about sort of the way? that your audience was consuming music at that in the 90s and how that changed? I mean, absolutely. Like just the monumental decision it was to me as a 14-year-old to buy one album, you know, for $17.99. Do I buy Fashion Nuggets by Cake because I heard the distance on the radio and I really liked it? Or do I just sit around waiting to hear it again? Like I remember sitting, listening to the radio with my hand poised over the play button on my cassette recorder to get the sweater song by Weezer. And it was just so important to me. It's uh, yeah, I've gassed on about this in a lot of episodes, but it's just so hard to explain to a young person now that like you, you were stuck with what was on the radio. You were stuck with what was on MTV. You were stuck with that what you actually was sold. 
old. Hey, you, you actually consume music on MTV. That was a thing exactly, you did. Yes, exactly. And MTV used to play videos, you know, but it's, it's, it was such a choice and it was such a stark and intense and like character personality defining choice, what you spent money on and what you didn't spend money on. And I've, I'm fascinated by that. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, in terms, it, it happens to everybody. I think naturally once you're in your thirties, like popular music is not about you anymore. It's not made by people like you and it's not directed toward you. And working as a professional quote unquote rock critic, like I keep up with it the way it's my job to, and I love it. But yes, it's totally unnatural. There's a very different feel to keeping up with new music as a 35 year old or whatever versus a 17 year old. As a 17 year old, it's the air you breathe. It's the blood pumping through your veins, you know, popular music. But it's, it's, it's of course different. It's this point. I should note that uh, after after you do your essay, you bring on a guest to talk about the song. And I do appreciate yeah. that you're bringing on a wide range of voices. You yeah. and I are two white guys talking, which is the standard mm-hmm. podcast format, but you're often bringing on people <laughs> who are not white guys. And I appreciate that, especially when it's something I know nothing about, like Selena, like totally right. ignorant of, of, of that mm-hmm. genre of music. So it's fun to listen to people who are passionate and knowledgeable about it. Requisite business question. Um, this is a Spotify exclusive. I think it's the so I ha- go to Spotify to listen to this because I'm a fanboy. Do you have a Thank sense you. of your audience of of, of people? Uh, you know, people saying, "Oh, I don't have Spotify, so I can't get this." Or do you have any sense of sort of what you're missing out on by this being segmented? I get a few you know, messages like that, you know, I, I wish it were wider, you know, and I can't understand that, but I, I I think that it is easily accessible enough. You know, I, I'm really grateful to Spotify. And as you say, I, I don't know this for a fact, but a big part of the show is me interacting with clips from the songs, you know, and clips from other songs that sort of provide context. And I do think that would be that is much easier, given that Spotify is backing this, of course, playing the full song at the end wouldn't be at all possible. And so I yeah, in a a perfect world, it would be accessible to everyone. And I do get the occasional message like that. But this podcast wouldn't be possible without Spotify. And and so I, I, I think that's the more important thing. Last personal indulgence question. De La Soul is my favorite band. Their first three albums are the best albums. Two of them are in the 90s. You cannot stream those albums because of licensing. Can you do a De La Soul episode anyway? I I can't, and I so wish that I could. I would do that in a heartbeat. You know, anything off De La Soul is dead, man. Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. You know, that would be a dark as hell episode, but like, I would love to do that. So that's a yes. You're going to do it. I don't know if at the end of the day I am forbidden from doing that because it's not okay. There are some streaming yet. Yeah, I mean, I've you know again like this. I'm 25 in. There are 35 left. This is taking me to the end of the year. There is still time. If I wake up tomorrow morning and all those records, those De La Soul records, are on Spotify, like that episode starts that second. I would absolutely love to do that. I just learned this weekend that. Open Mike Eagle has done a 13 part that is fantastic podcast you, interview with, with Prince, Prince Paul. Paul. That's you amazing. Do it. it is amazing. That podcast is awesome. Do they play uh, the music in that? Or is it just him uh, talking? They don't. They, I want to say that they play little clips occasionally, but not at the rate that I am. And there's no like full tracks. And it's broken down. Like there's an episode about three feet high and rising. There's an episode about grave diggers. It's like it moves around in time, but it's different elements of his career. Handsome boy modeling school. What it, what what had happened was is the name of that podcast. It's fantastic. And he just started a second season with LP with the rapper with the Run the Jewels dude LP. And it's, it's this sort of the same format. It's going to bounce around in LP's career. But no, you need to listen to that immediately. It was my favorite podcast of last year. Absolutely. All right. Well, when I'm done listening to your next episode, they're out every Wednesday. <laughs> I'll let you go. Rob, thanks for doing this. Thanks for indulging me. Recode Media listeners, thank you for letting me just have some personal time here with Rob that you can choose to listen to. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again to Rob. Thanks again to Alyssa. Thanks again to Allegra. Thanks to Joel and Jelani who produce and edit the show. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring it to you for free. This is not a premium podcast right now, yet. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks for your input. I love making this show. I like that you listen to it. If you like listening to it, you're still listening to me talk this far in. Tell someone else. They might like it too. Thanks. Thanks.